Hello and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. Yeah. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. <laughs> and I had no idea that I was that we were going to be graced with that beautiful song tonight. I was just really feeling it. We were we were doing a little song. We were doing a little singity song brand on our new- levels, checking our levels. <laughs> And I would, I was just feeling that song just like rising in me. So that's, that that was for you. That was thank free. you. <laughs> See, we we don't do anything half-assed here. No, we do not. That is that's free for anybody. That's no copyright on that. So anyway, Julia, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Great. We had a very full weekend this oh, past weekend. Of course. Um, and Sunday was the World Cup final. Yes, very important. Which I had two teams I was actually rooting for that were in the final. It was oh, yeah. France and Croatia. Of course. Um, so France, obviously, yeah. ended up winning. Yeah, which is great. Um, which is interesting now because there are only eight countries that have ever won the World Cup. Oh, really? So Brazil's won five times. Um, Germany and Italy have won four times. Argentina, France, and Uruguay have won two times Ooh. each. And then um, England and Spain have also won once oh okay so that's interesting so uh, something that comes up when you're doing world cup well you know talking about all these countries and stuff is you gotta know a little bit about geography well sure like where is that country exactly Mm -hmm. so i'm debuting a new segment here tonight it's called where in the world where in the world is so this new segment here we go i'm so excited we're gonna do little bits of geography learning here and there on the yeah. show now okay okay so with this i'm going to give you seven clues about a place and if you can guess what it is you win oh yay okay? i love winning so okay. the point value will it okay. will decrease for every clue i give so if you got it right on the first one that would be seven points for oh, you. Okay. if you got it right on the second one that's six, six points, points okay. you can guess after each clue i give you don't lose points okay i, I am i mean ultimately the points don't matter but <laughs> you'll you'll just feel better Okay, great. Okay, you'll just right. win the, You'll just have the satisfaction about knowing about this place. All right, I'm excited. Okay. Your first clue. Carthage ceded this place to the Romans in 241 BC after they won the First Punic War. Uh, Turkey. No. Oh, damn. Next. This place was given special status as an autonomous region in May 1946. Uh, Greenland? No. Ah, oh, damn. Okay. Next, the historic city of Syracuse here is a world UNESCO heritage site. Is it Greece? No. Oh, damn it. Italy? Okay, well, you only get one oh, guess Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. It is the largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. Oh, um, uh, I can't think of Cicero. That's not a thing. That's not my guess. Okay. Um, uh, I don't know. Keep going. <laughs> okay, next. Its most prominent landmark is Mount Etna, the tallest active volcano in Europe. I I know this. It starts with a C. It doesn't start with a C. No, no. Uh, Mykonos. Okay. It's <laughs> uh, not a next. Country. Leave the gun. Take the tube-shaped shells of fried pastry dough filled with a sweet filling, usually containing ricotta cheese, strongly associated with this place. I mean, cannoli. Uh huh. Is it cannoli? Strongly associated with this okay. place. Okay. I know. And you know what? You're going to tell me what it is, and I'm going to yell and yell. You're going to knock your microphone I'm gonna off the table. My, I'm going to leave the house. It's, uh, God, I know it too. I can see it in my brain. <laughs> Go ahead. Keep going. And finally, it is separated from the Italian mainland by the Strait of Messina, about three kilometers or two miles, which wide in the north. Christ on a cracker. Is it Sicily? It is Sicily. Oh, Jesus. Well, you bet. 
you got no, it. No, my father is going to yell at me so much. He's going to yell and yell, and he's not going to stop yelling until one of us is dead. <laughs> All the LaRussos of my family are turning, spinning in their graves right now. I'm so sorry, everyone. You got there in the end, Lauren. I did. Don't after worry about you it. literally like pointed to it with a giant red arrow. Okay. figuratively of course <laughs> please continue well, about sicily no that <laughs> oh Sicilia. all the facts i wanted you to know about sicily but that's very interesting i love this this is a good segment i'm really enjoying this <laughs> well, even though i'm terrible well at it. it's over now it's, it's over. great Whew, the okay. segment is over all right Whew. now okay. it's time to talk about our topic for the week oh okay so um if this was a hundred years ago and i said to you the biggest loser you would know exactly who i was talking about so i would not be talking about a you television would not be talking show about a reality television program about weight loss that has that has really destroyed a lot of people's lives yeah, it's very bad it? yeah. like it's not healthy the way they make them no. lose that weight and then all of those people like they have depression afterwards because they gain a lot of weight back yeah. and like it's just very bad anyway but we're not talking about <laughs> we're not that talking today. about that Okay. Go out back a hundred years in history, and I'm okay. going to talk to you about one of the biggest losers, oh. named William Jennings Bryan. All right, so this guy, I'm just going to probably refer to him by Brian as Brian as oh, his last name the whole time. Sure, that's he's a he's a lot of syllables. If you keep saying William Jennings Bryan yeah. over and over, that is going to increase the length of this podcast by, I don't know, at least 14 minutes. If no, I absolutely. Said it the full name every time. Did anyone ever call him W J? Hmm. W J Brian. Well, you're going to learn more about him, and I don't think that anybody anybody would, would say no, that. Okay. Definitely not Bill. Definitely Ooh. not. Not Billy or Willie or Will. No, Ooh. certainly not a Willie. He Ooh. is a he's William Jennings Bryan. <laughs> <laughs> Even his own mother called him by his full name. Yes, it's terrible. So, um, because of his faith in the wisdom of the common people, he was often later called in life the Great Commoner. Oh, okay. so that's his you know resounding nickname. So William Jennings Bryan was born in Salem, Illinois, on March nineteenth, eighteen sixty, to Silas Lillard Bryan and Mariah Elizabeth Jennings Bryan. He attended Methodist services on Sunday mornings with his father, and in the afternoon Baptist services with his mother. And he also spent his Sunday afternoons at the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Oh, so quaint. yeah, so just you know, well, there's not a lot to do in That's Salem, true. Illinois, in eighteen sixty. Um, so at age 14, he attended a revival and he was baptized and he joined the Presbyterian church. And in later life, he said the day of his baptism was the most important day in his whole life. Wow. So this is, you know, okay. You're getting an idea. (laughs) Um, until age 10, he was homeschooled as many children were at the time. Um, he read mostly the Bible and the McGuffey readers, which enforced to him that gambling and liquor were evil, sinful, and I hate to use this word, but iniquitous. (gasps) iniquitous. <gasps> iniquitous. How <Yes>. dare you? <gasps> um, following high school at Whipple Academy, he had, he entered Illinois College, graduating as valedictorian in 1881. He soon studied law at Union Law College in Chicago, which was later Northwestern University School of Law. And while preparing for the bar exam, he taught high school and met Mary Elizabeth Baird. So Brian and Mary married on October 1st, 1884, and they settled in Jacksonville, Illinois. Mary also became a lawyer Hey. Oh, yeah. And she collaborated with Brian on all of his speeches and writings. So oh, cool. he practiced law in Jacksonville, Illinois, from 1883 to 1887. And then they soon moved to Lincoln, Nebraska. Okay. So Brian was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives from Nebraska's first congressional district in the Democratic landslide of 1890. He served two terms before his defeat in the 1894 Senate elections. 
So Brian gave speeches, organized meetings, and adopted resounding resolutions that eventually culminated in the founding of the American Bimetallic League, which then evolved into the National Bimetallic Union, and finally, the National Silver Committee. Okay, ready? Okay. So what does all this mean? So ready? We're yeah. going to unpack the history of the gold standard in the United oh. States. <laughs> oh, whoa. Let, hold on. Let me buckle in because this is going to be a click, click. Get out your uh. notepads. So... In the 1780s, Thomas Jefferson, Robert Morris, and Alexander Hamilton recommended to Congress the value of a decimal system. So, mm. you know, before we talked about the system that ran by 20s, this yep. is the system by 10s, the decimal system. So this also would apply to money in the United States. So the question was, what type of standard would they follow? Gold, silver, or both? Uh, the U.S. adopted a silver standard based on the Spanish milled dollar in 1785. So a couple of years later, in 1792, Congress passed the Mint and Coinage Act, which authorized the federal government's use of the Bank of the United States to hold its reserves, as well as establishing a fixed ratio of gold to the U.S. dollar. So gold and silver coins were legal tender, as was the Spanish real. And in 1792, the market price of gold was about 15 times that of silver. So silver coins left circulation and were exported to pay the debts taken on to finance the American Revolutionary War. Are you okay. with me? Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. hanging on. Gold and silver are both good. Yes. The price of gold is better than the price of silver. Sure. So they're like, let's use let's silver to pay our debts. Yeah. In 1806, President Jefferson suspended the minting of silver coins, and this resulted in a derivative silver standard, since the Bank of the United States was not required to fully back its currency with reserves. So this began a long series of attempts by the United States to create a bimetallic standard. Bimetallic, meaning two, two metals. metals. Mm -hmm. yes. So the government's intention was to use gold for large denominations and silver for smaller denominations. A problem with bimetallic standards was that the metal's absolute and relative market prices changed, though. Sure. So the mint ratio, which is the rate at which the mint was obligated to pay or receive for gold relative to silver, remained fixed at 15 ounces of silver to one ounce of gold, whereas the market rate fluctuated between yeah. like 15 and a half or 16 to one. Um, and with the Coinage Act of 1834, Congress passed an act changing the mint ratio to approximately 16 to one. But gold discoveries in California in 1848 and later in Australia, lowered the gold price relative to silver. So this ended up driving silver money from circulation because it was worth more in the market as silver than as money. So the mint ratio, again, that's the fixed exchange rate, um, continued to overvalue gold. So in 1853, the U.S. reduced the silver weight of coins to keep them in circulation. And in 1857, removed legal tender status from foreign coinage. So before they were also accepting like oh, okay. British money and, and Spanish money and French money. In 1862, paper money was made legal tender. So this was a fiat money. So fiat money is a currency without intrinsic value that has been established as money mm. by government regulation. Uh, fiat money doesn't actually have use value and has value only because the government says that it has value yeah i remember i was talking to somebody about money it's like we just all decided that this piece of like mm -hmm. green paperly cloth is worth something yes and if we all stopped believing that then it has no worth and we are descent into chaos Isn't scary it's very frightening <laughs> <laughs> it is very scary yeah uh, so these fiat um, notes in the 1860s came to be called greenbacks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So after the Civil War, 
Congress wanted to reestablish the metallic standard at pre-war rates, which actually required deflation to achieve the pre-war price. Oh, wow. Okay. So the Coinage Act of 1873, which was also known to some as the crime of 73, formally demonetized silver. So this act removed like the big silver dollar from circulation. Mm. And subsequently, silver was only used in coins worth less than a dollar. In 1879, the government again paid its debts in gold, accepted greenbacks for customs, and redeemed greenbacks on demand in gold. Greenbacks were therefore perfect substitutes for gold coins. So during the latter part of the 19th century, the use of silver and a return to the bimetallic standard were recurrent political issues. Okay. Okay. So there was, there's an, so what I'm getting is that there was some argument as to how we were going to value our money post-war. Yep. Um, and there seemed to be a difference of opinion on that. The, yes. Okay. Certainly. Great. Because we have the silver. Sure. Why don't we just bring the silver back? Why can't back? we just use the silver? Yeah. And people were like, no, no, onward and upward, mm-hmm. gold only. Yes. Okay. So the ultimate goal of the American Bimetallic League, later the National Bimetallic Union, later the National Silver Committee, was to garner support on a national level for the reinstatement of the coinage of silver. I see. So William Jennings Bryan was somebody who was... Just Big a supporter. Just a bimetallic uh, head. Bimetallic nutso. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, they, they also called him like a supporter of the free silver movement, but Whoa. I'm fine with bimetallic Bi- bonkers. Yeah. Bi- bimetal. Bonkers for bimetals. <laughs> yes. That's what his posters would look like, I would imagine. So here we are. It's the 1896 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Okay. So Brian delivers his cross of gold speech which attacked the gold standard and the Eastern moneyed interests. This is a very important speech to know. Ready? I have heard of it, but I did not know it it was about money. Yes. Wow. The cross of gold speech. So in this address, Brian supported bimetabolism. Nope. He didn't support (laughs) bimetabolisms. He supported bimetalisms. Two I different mean, metabolisms. I mean, metabolism. A slow we don't metabolism. Know. That's been lost to history. <laughs> yes, we don't know this. So, <laughs> the cross of gold speech. Yeah. By metalism, or okay. what he called free silver, which he believed would bring the nation prosperity. That's okay. the basic of it. So, he recounted the history of the silver movement, and throughout the speech, he had the delegates in the palm of his hand. They were basically like reacting and cheering on cue. And as Ooh. he concluded his speech, he reminded the silver delegates that they had come to crown their victory, quote, not to discuss, not to debate, but to enter up the judgment already rendered by the plain people of this country. He then defended the right of silver supporters to make their argument against opposition from gold men who were associated with financial interests, especially in the East. And they did call them like that. He's a gold man, you know. So <laughs> so did this. What I'm getting from this is that it's more of a populist issue, sort of like yeah. it seems like the common well, man the wants silver. Well, the rich people who had the gold said, well, the gold's the only thing that's valuable. Oh, oh OK. And that everyone makes else sense. is like, but silver. Yeah, but silver. I have a little bit of silver. Yeah. I don't have any gold. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Now, I because originally I was like, why is everyone getting so head up about silver and uh-huh. gold and what our money is backed with? But that makes sense. Yes. Okay. So at the end of his speech, here's his end, end quote. Okay. Having behind us the producing masses of this nation and the world, supported by the commercial interests, the laboring interests, and the toilers everywhere, we will answer their demand for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Ooh, do you I have just, goosebumps I right do now? I do have goosebumps right now, and I don't even have a horse in this race. Wow. Yeah. What a great it's orator. A, it's a 
Yes, and that's what he's best known for. Billy. Okay, other All than right. losing a lot of things, Uh-oh. he was a really good speech. Yeah, speech no, I, maker. That is impressive. So he gave this line, and okay. then there was silence. <gasps> so he th- he was like, "Oh well, crap." Yeah, I, I thought I was doing okay. That was my, whatever. That was my As he final stepped line. off the stage, the Coliseum burst into pandemonium. Oh. People were throwing hats and coats and handkerchiefs in oh the my air. God. There were police officers that joined him as he left the podium. They were anticipating that the crowd would rush him, and the policemen were swept away by the flood of delegates. Oh my God! Who raised Brian to their shoulders and carried him around the floor? Oh my God! The Washington Post newspaper recorded. Bedlam broke loose. Delirium reigned supreme. It took about a half an hour to restore order. And according to political scientist Richard F. Bensel, somewhere in the mass demonstration that was convulsing the convention hall, the transfer of sentiment from silver as a policy to Brian as a presidential candidate took place. Oh. So, I, I mean, I get it. Sure. You know, like people speak. This is something that I've talked about with Steve a little bit. I'm like, uh-huh. you know, like we're all... Like we're, um, we're pack animals, like Uh biologically. So when we all get like, we all get like excited with each other, we have a lot of empathy. So we're like, yeah, you, me too. Yes. Oh yeah. I'm excited. Uh And then that's how like mass hysteria happens because, and like folly ado and that kind Mm -hmm. of thing where people have like a lot of mental illness that spreads across. (laughs) I'm not saying that they, it was mass hysteria, but this kind of thing is like, it's insane that one person can like whip up a crowd. Yeah. And if you haven't witnessed it. Yeah. But I mean, it's the same thing. People used to say like when they would see Obama speak, oh, it oh, was yeah. like. It was pandemonium. Yeah. yeah. Especially at the beginning. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. It's crazy. Yeah. So Brian's address helped catapult him to the Democratic Party's presidential nomination that yeah, year. Hell yeah. And this is considered one of the greatest political speeches in American history. Yeah. So you got to know William Jennings Bryan is the Cross of Gold speech, 1896 presidential candidate. Okay. As a result. So um, the Democrats, they rejected the incumbent president, my boy Grover Cleveland, oh. because they thought he was too old fashioned. Um, his wing of the party was called the Bourbon Democrats. So... <laughs> The bourbon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, a lot of Southern supporters. Sure, of course. Mm-hmm. So the Democratic Convention ended up nominating Brian for president, making him the youngest major party presidential nominee in U.S. history. Oh, cool. That same year, he became the first presidential candidate to campaign in a car. Ooh. It was a, it was a Mueller. Oh, know, okay. But for the record. Um and he was 36 years old at the time, just oh, wow. one year older than the minimum age of 35 for running for president. Since he was a supporter of bimetallism, Brian was also nominated by the Populist Party and the Silver Republican Party. Oh. So he had three nominations for president. That's crazy. So voters from any party could vote for Brian without crossing party lines. Wow. So there were, see, so again, he had the three nominations. In 1896, the populists rejected Brian's Democratic running mate, who was Maine banker Arthur Sewell, and named his running mate Georgia populist Thomas E. Watson. So people, oh, well, I mean, okay, at this time it was just men uh, voting in the 1896 <laughs> election could vote for Brian and Seawall on the Democratic or Silver Republican lines or for Brian and Watson on the People's Party line. Wow. He gave more than 500 speeches in 1896 alone. What? And he basically invented the national stumping tour in an era where other presidential candidates just stayed home. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, so you get your ballot. Yeah, it's 1896. You just see this man. So many people. He's are, all over the place. So many people root for this man. I think. Then what happened? Oh, well. In the intensely fought 1896 presidential election, Republican nominee William McKinley emerged triumphant. Um, with the outbreak of the Spanish-American War in 1898, Bryan was forced to consider his party's stance on foreign policy. Uh, so on one hand, Bryan was critical of militarism, but seeing. Sp- 
Spain's suppression of Cuban and Filipino self-government movements went against his view of his country's global mission. So he pictured the U.S. spreading democracy to the rest of the world. And with this idealism in mind, Brian enthusiastically supported President McKinley's declaration of war against Spain. And Brian argued that universal peace cannot come until justice is enthroned throughout the world. Until the right has triumphed in every land and love reigns in every heart, government must, as a last resort, appeal to force. Wow. So he volunteered for duty and became colonel of a Nebraska militia regiment. But he contracted typhoid fever in oh. Florida and stayed there to recuperate, never actually seeing combat. So this is all around the time of the Spanish-American War. Let me give you a refresher. Okay. 1898. Great. That's that's the year of the Spanish-American War. Hostilities began in the aftermath of the internal explosion of the USS Maine yes, in Havana Harbor Maine. in Cuba, leading to U.S. intervention in the Cuban War of Independence. So the 10-week war was fought in both the Caribbean and the Pacific. As the American agitators for war well knew, U.S. naval power proved decisive, allowing expeditionary forces to, to disembark in Cuba against a Spanish garrison already facing nationwide Cuban insurgent attacks and further wasted by yellow fever. American, Cuban, and Philippine forces obtained during the surrender of Santiago de Cuba and Manila, despite the good performance of some Spanish infantry units and fierce fighting for positions such as San Juan Hill. So Madrid in Spain sued for peace after two obsolete Spanish squadrons sunk in Santiago de Cuba in Manila Bay, and a third, more modern fleet was recalled home to protect the Spanish coast. The result was the 1898 Treaty of Paris, negotiated on terms favorable to the U.S., which allowed it temporary control of Cuba and ceding ownership of Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippine Islands okay. to America. Um, the American acquisition of Spain's Pacific possessions led to its involvement in the Philippine Revolution and ultimately the Philippine American War, which was a couple of years later. Okay. So he was like, Brian, you know, he's a big name in the party. Sure. And he was like, okay, you know what? I support us going into this war. Like, it's only as a last resort. Like, yeah. Because, okay. like, democracy, we need yeah. to have that everywhere. So, Brian retained control of the Democratic Party and won the presidential nomination again in 1900. In the aftermath of the Spanish-American War, Brian became a fierce opponent of American imperialism and much of the campaign centered on that issue. Brian gave a speech at the Democratic National Convention in 1900, simply titled Imperialism. In this speech, he discussed his views against the annexation of the Philippines, questioning the U.S.'s right to overpower people of another country just to gain a military base. Does this sound familiar? Um, He mentioned that the U.S. should not try to emulate the imperialism of Great Britain and other European countries who were in this period also extending their power in Asia and Africa. So now he's running as an anti-imperialist. He found himself in alliance with industrialist Andrew Carnegie, as well as others who had fought against silver just a few years ago. Uh So Republicans mocked Brian as indecisive or cowardly, or to use a 21st century term, a flip-flopper. Flip-flopper. Yep. Um, but in a typical day, he still gave four hour long speeches and shorter talks that added up to six hours of speaking at an average rate of 175 words a minute. He turned out 63,000 words a day, enough to fill 52 columns of a newspaper. And in the state of Wisconsin, he once made 12 speeches in 15 hours. Like what? This man is just talk, 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 stopping Mm -hmm. his poor wife. Because you know he was practicing, you know he's practicing at home, and she was like, "Oh my God, Bill, please just let me go to sleep." I can't yeah, hear one he more said thing. Yeah, that were great. Oh, oh they're gonna God. cheer for you so much. Okay, it's okay, you did great. <laughs> so, 1900 presidential election. Oh boy, 
William McKinley again defeated Brian, winning several Western states that Brian had previously won in 1896. Oh, boy. So Brian's influence in the party weakened after the 1900 election, and the Democrats didn't even think about him for the next one in 1904. Oh, boy. They instead nominated the conservative Alton B. Parker in the 1904 presidential election. Mm. So meanwhile... Back in 1901, Brian had founded a weekly magazine called The Commoner, which called on Democrats to dissolve trusts, regulate the railroads more tightly, and support the progressive movement. So he's trying to he's trying, trying to make to his back way back. There. You know, maybe third time's a charm for William Jennings Bryan. Hey. All right. So he came back like a bad cold sore. <laughs> this oh, time. I hate those. They're so painful. <laughs> <laughs> this time, Brian won his party's nomination in the 1908 presidential election. Great. Great. Brian and the Democrats' platform denounced the wrongs done by the Republican Party, saying that Congress spent too much money, that Roosevelt had handpicked his successor, Taft, in an undemocratic fashion. Uh, they said that Republicans wanted centralization and they favored monopolies. And, you know, they're, they're like, this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. Sure. In response, um, Brian publicized the slogan, shall the people rule? That's good. Shall Ooh. the people rule? That's good. It's like a um, question. Yeah. In a time of peace and prosperity and Republican trust busting, Brian fared poorly among the voters. He lost the Electoral College 321 to 162, his worst defeat yet, and he did not carry any Northeast states. In his three presidential election bids, Brian received a total of 493 electoral votes, the most of any candidate in American history who never won the presidency. Wow. Oh, that's sad. Three-time three time loser. Oh, poor All right. William Jennings Bryan. But... You know, he's like, he's like, well, what are my skills? I'm good at talking. Oh, great right? at talking. So here he goes. He becomes the most popular speaker on the Chautauqua circuit, delivering oh. thousands of paid speeches on current events in hundreds of towns and cities across the country. So um, Chautauqua. Very yeah. So Chautauqua was an adult education movement in the U.S., highly mm-hmm. popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, Chautauqua assemblies expanded and thread throughout rural America until the 1920s. So Chautauqua brought entertainment and culture for the whole community with speakers, teachers, musicians, entertainers, preachers, and specialists of the day. Mm-hmm. So it sounds to me like it was really like vacation Bible school for adults. <laughs> yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so, good. but. When he went and did his circuit, he usually charged $500 per speech in addition to a percentage of the profits. And he spoke mostly about Christianity, but covered a wide variety of topics. And his most popular lecture and his personal favorite was called The Prince of Peace, which stressed that Christian theology was the solid foundation of morality and individual and group morality was the foundation for peace and equity. So he seems like he was, I mean, he wasn't a bad guy. No, no. He seems like he was not like a fun guy probably not very fun or like a funny guy probably not very funny or like a friendly guy maybe maybe he would shake hands oh but i'm sure he would not kiss as much as our guys our guy bill mckinley oh my god never bill met McKinley. a hand he didn't shake <laughs> <laughs> and a beard and beards are so attractive yeah brian did not have it no he did not Clean shaven man mm, yeah so, you know, he's making money at Chautauqua. Sure, that's great. But you know what? He's not done with politics yet. Oh, William, what's wrong? What are you doing? <laughs> so after the Democrats won the presidency in the 1912 election, Woodrow Wilson mm. rewarded Brian's support with the important cabinet position of Secretary of State. Oh, good. Great. He's in the cabinet. He's in the, yeah, he's in government that's now. That's good. But 
After the Lusitania was torpedoed by a German submarine in 1915, Wilson made strong demands on Germany that Brian disagreed with because he hoped to avoid entering the Great War. So Brian resigned from office in no. 1915. The U.S. entered the war two years later. Uh, Brian remained active in public life, supporting Wilson's reelection. And he did also campaign for the constitutional amendments on prohibition and women's suffrage. So, OK, yeah, well, yeah, six yeah, of one, great. half a dozen of another. OK, yeah. we're not done yet. <laughs> Oh, okay. After he resigned as Secretary of State until his death, Brian became a promoter of Florida real estate. Of course. And he lived in the Miami area during the colder months. (laughs) I'm just imagining him in like a Hawaiian shirt and some cargo shorts. Yeah. (laughs) That's exactly how I'm imagining him. (laughs) Um, His promotion. So he did print speeches and radio talks actually contributed to the Florida real estate boom of the 1920s. And Brian became rich from his real estate investments and promotion fees. So he's earning money off speeches. He's making money off real estate. Yeah. Sounds to me like he's a guy that shouldn't be arguing against the gold standard. But, you know. Oh, yeah. No, Mm -hmm. that's 100% true. Yeah. Sounds like he kind of fell in a little bit with that... With that richy rich sweet cash kind of thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. So the other thing that that we all should know him for. Okay. Ready? He opposed Darwinism on religious and humanitarian grounds, most famously at the Scopes trial okay. in 1925 That's in Tennessee. That's what I heard of him. Mm-hmm. Okay. So first, Brian believed what he considered a materialistic account of the descent of man and all life through evolution was directly contrary to the biblical creation account, which he accepted. Second, Brian considered Darwinism as applied to society, also known as social Darwinism, Mm -hmm. to be a great evil force in the world, promoting hatred and conflicts, especially in the world war and inhibiting upward social and economic mobility of the poor and oppressed. Uh, Brian actively lobbied for state laws banning public schools from teaching evolution. Brian also linked Darwinism to what he considered to be the might makes right philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, Brian believed that such thinking served not so much as an exclamation for justice, but more as an excuse for injustice, particularly in the areas of harming the weak and waging war. And the legislatures of several Southern states proved to be receptive to his anti-evolution message and passed such laws after Brian addressed them. So a prominent example of this was the Butler Act of 1925, which made it unlawful in Tennessee to teach that mankind evolved from lower life forms. So that law triggered the Scope Trial, formerly known as the State of Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes and commonly referred to as the Scopes Monkey Trial, which was an American legal case in July 1925 in which a substitute high school teacher, John T. Scopes, was accused of violating Tennessee's Butler Act. The case was seen as both a theological contest and a trial on whether modern science should be taught in schools. All right. You got it. It's okay. All right. Yeah. Brian's participation in the highly publicized 1925 Scopes trial served as a capstone to his career. He was asked by William Bell Riley to represent the World Christian Fundamentals Association as counsel at the trial. And during the trial, Brian took the stand and was questioned by defense lawyer Clarence Darrow about his views on the Bible. Um, They say, asked when the flood occurred, Brian consulted Usher's Bible Concordance and gave the date as 2348 BC or 4,273 years ago. Did Brian not know, asked Darrow, that Chinese civilization had been traced back at least 7,000 years? Brian conceded that he did not. And when he was asked if the records of any religion made mention of a flood at the time he cited, Brian replied, the Christian religion has always been good enough for me. I never found it necessary to study any competing religion. So the national media 
reported this trial in great detail. Um, journalist H.L. Mencken ridiculed Brian as a symbol of anti-intellectualism and Southern ignorance, despite him not being from yeah, the South. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And after the judge expunged all of Brian's answers to Darrow's questions, both sides closed without summation. The jury quickly returned actually a guilty verdict with the defense's encouragement, and Brian actually won the case on July 21st, 1925. However, the state Supreme Court reversed the verdict on a technicality a year later in 1926. So the coverage of this trial made him look bad. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Like, worse than he'd already looked. Yeah. The, that's that's the basis of, oh. you know. I, I remember seeing a... The, this is the only thing I know about William uh-huh. Jennings Bryan. I remember seeing a drunk history... Mm-hmm. Of the Scopes Monkey Trial. Okay. And it's very funny. So I highly recommend watching that particular episode that has the Scopes Monkey Trial in it. Um, But yeah, that's all I know about William Jennings Bryan. And it wasn't like a comprehensive um, telling of the Scopes Monkey Trial. So this is good. (laughs) This is more informative. (laughs) So five days after the Scopes Trial ended, on Sunday, July 26, 1925, Bryan returned home to Dayton, Tennessee. After attending church services, he ate a large meal, then died during a nap that afternoon. So it was five days after the trial's conclusion. Oh, my God. When someone remarked to Darrow that Brian died from a broken heart, Darrow responded, broken heart? Hell, he died of a busted belly. I don't know if he was Southern. I just... No, I love that. That statement just sounds better that way. Oh, busted belly, yes. So Brian is buried in Arlington National Cemetery, and his headstone reads, Statesman, yet friend to truth, of soul sincere, in action faithful, and in honor clear. Oh, that's lovely. Okay. In popular culture, <laughs> okay. here's why else you might know him besides um, okay. besides drunk history. So L. Frank Baum satirized Brian as the cowardly lion in The Wonderful <gasps> Wizard of Oz, published in 1900. Really? Baum had been a Republican activist in 1896, and he wrote on McKinley's behalf. So hmm. The Cowardly Lion is based on William Jennings Bryan. I had no idea. That's so interesting. Um, I think where I first encountered him was Inherit the Wind, a 1955 play by Jerome Lawrence and Robert Edwin Lee, which is a highly fictionalized account of the Scopes trial written in response to McCarthyism. So in this trial, in this play, a populist thrice defeated presidential candidate from Nebraska named Matthew Harrison Brady (laughs) comes to a small town named Hillsborough in Tennessee to help prosecute a young teacher for teaching evolution to his school children. He is opposed by a famous trial lawyer, Henry Drummond, based on (laughs) Clarence Darrow, and mocked by a cynical newspaperman based on H.L. Mencken as the trial assumes a national profile. A 1960 Hollywood film adaptation written by the playwrights was directed by Stanley Kramer and stars Spencer Tracy as lawyer Henry Drummond and Frederick March as his friend and rival Matthew Harrison Brady. Wow. That's a little, it's pretty transparent. <laughs> yeah. <It's, laughs> they might as well have and Blobel. <laughs> yeah. They might as well have called them Schmilling, <laughs> Schmenning's Schmayan. <laughs> um, Vachel Lindsay's singing poem, Brian, 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 is a lengthy tribute to the idol of the poet's youth. And I will put out a link to that poem. It's Who is this person? Vachel Lindsay. Vachel? Vachel. Okay. It's Rachel with a V instead of an R. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. It's called Brian, 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 which is the name of this episode. <laughs> That's um, great. So we'll link to that. And then finally, you know, we talked about coins and stuff a little oh, earlier. Brian money is a term used in the numismatic community to refer to tokens and medals associated with William Jennings Bryan's platform during the U.S. presidential elections of 1896 and 1900. So again, his platform advocated for the reinstatement of silver currency. Um, So they made um, tokens 
you know, to mm-hmm. honor this. So there were two categories, comparative and satirical. Comparative tokens were made of coin silver by true silversmiths, and their main purpose was to compare the size and ratio of silver needed for dual standard currency to the silver's market price. So these pieces were modeled after the silver dollar format and were later banned due to counterfeiting concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, and satirical tokens bore derisive or humorous inscriptions that mocked the proposed dual standard. So many pieces featured similar slogans such as, in God we trust for the other 47 cents, and 16 to 1 <laughs> NIT, not in trust, referencing the proposed value ratio of silver to gold. So um, this is, you know, they're highly collectible in the numismatic community because they were only around for a certain period of time and they represented this certain, you know, this um, this platform that he, that he dealt with. So it was called Brian Money. Okay. That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. That's- I had no idea except for the Scopes Monkey Trial. So that's <laughs> very interesting. Thank you very much, Julia. Mm-hmm. So we got a simple quiz this week. Ooh, okay. It's I like a simple time quiz. Time for speech and debate. This is a quiz on ten important speeches you should know. Question one. What was the location of colonial patriot Patrick Henry when he declared, Give me liberty or give me death in seventeen seventy five? Question two. Though this speech didn't originally have a title when it was spontaneously delivered at a women's rights convention in Akron, Ohio in 1851, Ain't I a Woman is considered the best-known speech by which abolitionist, former enslaved person, and women's rights activist? Question 3. Don't worry, this isn't actually a word problem. Fill in the blanks from future U.S. President Abraham Lincoln's speech at the Illinois State Capitol in 1858. A house, blank, against, blank, cannot, blank. Question four. Susan B. Anthony's off-cited, is it a crime for a citizen of the United States to vote? Speech was given throughout Monroe County, New York in 1873, a year after she was arrested for illegally voting in the 1872 presidential election in Rochester. Anthony argued that she had the right to vote because of what recently adopted amendment to the U.S. Constitution, part of which reads, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Question five. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had no fear of public speaking, assuring the nation with his series of radio fireside chats. FDR also gave a number of memorable, important speeches to the American public. Tell me which years he delivered, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, which was part of his first inaugural address, and the annually repeated, a date which will live in infamy speech. Question six. On January 30th, 1948, Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru delivered a sad, spontaneous speech now called The Light Has Gone Out of Our Lives, following the assassination of which nonviolent activist? Question 7. Future President Richard Nixon ran into some troubles in 1952 when he was accused of improprieties relating to a fund established by his backers to reimburse him for his political expenses. With his place on the Republican ticket in doubt, he flew to Los Angeles and delivered a half-hour television address where he defended himself, attacked his opponents, and urged the audience to contact the Republican National Committee to tell them whether he should remain on the ticket. During the speech, he stated that regardless of what anyone said, he intended to keep one gift— a black and white dog given what name by his children? Question eight. Three quick true or false questions on three famous speeches by JFK. You just tell me if they're true or false. First, JFK's famous line, ask not what your country can do for you, was delivered during his inaugural address in 1961. 
1962, JFK said that we choose to do things, quote, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, in regard to the Bay of Pigs invasion. And third, Ich bin ein Berliner, the best-known speech of the Cold War given by JFK in 1963, made him a laughingstock in Germany because the phrase really does translate to, I am a jelly donut. Question 9. In April 1964, at a church in Cleveland, Ohio, Nation of Islam leader Malcolm X delivered his famous speech advising African Americans to judiciously exercise their right to vote. But he cautioned that if the government continued to prevent African Americans from attaining full equality, it might be necessary for them to take up arms. What was the fairly alliterative title of this speech? And finally, question 10. Hint, the answer is not the Berlin Wall. At what 18th century neoclassical monument was Ronald Reagan standing near in 1987 when he implored Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down this wall? Give you about a minute to think and I'll be back with your answers. That was tougher than I was expecting. You said it was going to be a simple quiz, and and I was... By simple, I meant straightforward. Oh, oh, (laughs) well. All right. Well, lay it on me. Okay. All right. I'm going to try it. All right. Question one. What was the location of colonial patriot Patrick Henry when he declared, give me liberty or give me death in 1775? Uh, I'm going to say Philadelphia. Okay. He was at the Virginia House of Burgesses in Williamsburg, Virginia. So the House of Burgesses was the legislative body of the colonies. Okay. So um, it became the House of Delegates in 1776, retaining its status as the lower house of the General Assembly, the legislative branch of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So the Virginia House of Delegates is considered the oldest continuous legislative body in the New World. In honor of the original House of Burgesses, every four years, the Virginia General Assembly traditionally leaves the current capital in Richmond and meets for one day in the restored Capitol building at Colonial Williamsburg. And the most recent commemorative session, the 26th, was held in January 2016 at Colonial Williamsburg. So, House of Burgesses. House of Burgesses. I had never heard that until today. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Art historian. (laughs) Art historian here. Art. (laughs) Art historian. Yes. Um, question two. Though this speech didn't originally have a title when it was spontaneously delivered at a women's rights convention in Akron, Ohio in 1851, Ain't I a Woman is considered the best-known speech by which abolitionist, former enslaved person, and women's rights activist? Uh, is it Ida B. Wells? This is Sojourner Truth. Oh, shoot. 
So um, her speech demanded equal human rights for all women as well as for all African Americans. The title of the speech was derived from the phrase, am I not a man and a brother, which had been used by British abolitionists since the late 18th century to decry the inhumanity of slavery. And in 1830, an American abolitionist newspaper carried an image of a slave woman asking, am I not a woman and a sister? Um, So... Sojourner Truth was asserting both her sex and race by asking the crowd, am I not a woman? But in her patois, so it was, ain't I a woman? It's nice. I did not know that. <laughs> I am a bad feminist. <laughs> Great. <laughs> it's all right. That we're, we're all still learning. Yeah, this is just, it's a safe space. It's yeah. a safe knowledge space. Yeah. yeah. Question three. Don't worry, this isn't actually a word problem. Fill in the blanks from future U.S. President Abraham Lincoln's speech at the Illinois State Capitol in 1858. Yes. A house blank against blank cannot blank. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Yes. Woo. Perfect. Yeah. So Lincoln's remarks in Springfield created an image of the danger of slavery-based disunion, and it rallied Republicans across the North. Along with the Gettysburg Address in his second inaugural address, the speech became one of his best-known speeches. He was quoting from the Gospel of Matthew 12.25, quote, And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto him, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Great. Yeah. Question four. Susan B. Anthony's off-cited Is It a Crime for a Citizen in the United States to Vote speech was given throughout Monroe County, New York in 1873, a year after she was arrested for illegally voting in the 1872 election. She argued that she had the right to vote because of what recently adopted amendment to the U.S. Constitution. But you literally, <laughs> you literally adjusted this episode. Okay. I literally word, just listened to The it. word citizens appears in the quote that I said. If that, if you can mnemonic your way back to that. <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, citizens, citizens, seventeenth, citizens, passport, citizens, passport, passport. You need your passport if you're a citizen. How many days does it take to get your passport? Uh, fourteen days. Yes. Fourteen, yes, fourteenth <laughs> amendment. Oh my god. Okay. Woo, woo. I swear I'm not dumb, you guys. I'm not dumb. <laughs> Sicily's an dumb. island off the coast of Italy. <laughs> The 14th Amendment. So U.S. v. Susan B. Anthony was the criminal trial of Susan B. Anthony in a U.S. federal court in 1873. She castigated the case's judge for denying her a trial by jury, but said that even if she had allowed the jury to discuss the case, she still would have been denied a trial by jury of her peers because women were not allowed to be jurors. Mm -hmm. Also, not for nothing, uh, the RMSC, the Rochester Museum and Science Center, has a large collection of Susan B. Anthony's personal objects, uh, including a brooch, a uh, shawl um, and we have a couple of books signed by her of her trial like the transcript oh, of her cool. trial which is really really cool yeah yeah I bet she like wrote notes in the margins was like this, this sucker this guy was an asshole PS <laughs> she probably mailed like bags of manure to oh yeah them. she uh, was a pistol sure was Question five. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had no fear of public speaking, assuring the nation with his series of fireside chats. He also gave a number of memorable, important speeches to the American public. Tell me which years he delivered. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself, which was part of his first inaugural address, and the annually repeated a date which shall live in infamy. Okay, are these so, two the separate? Only thing, two, two different speeches. Two different what speeches. What year did he give the the only thing we have to fear is fear itself? I'm going to say 1928. 
1933. Oh, shoot. Okay. Um, this was at his inauguration. And in this, he was referring to the economy and the Great Depression. Okay. So that's what that, the whole fear there is yeah. about that. And then a date which shall live in infamy. Um, 19, this is, this is 1940. Shoot. Because it's about the, the, um, Pearl Harbor bombing. Mm-hmm. Yep. 1940. Uh, what year did the U.S. enter the war? Uh, How about it was, that? It was late. It was later. Later in the war. When, when did the war end? 1945. Okay. So how long do you think we were in it? Like two years. So 1940. Maybe like four years. What if we were in the war for like four years? So 1941, really? 1941. <laughs> Yay, Lauren. <laughs> Thank you for being <laughs> so this positive reinforcement. I feel like I'm a puppy that's being taught how to sit. You're like, so, ooh, you're sitting. Good job. And then I get a cookie. Mm. Oh, man. Mm. I'm so, sorry, everybody. No, so the date which Shalom Infamy <laughs> speech was given December 7, 1941. It was his post-Pearl Harbor speech to U.S. Congress where he called for a declaration of war against Japan. Mm-hmm. Yes. I did know that. I just did not uh-huh. know the year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Question six. On January 30th, 1948, Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru delivered a sad, spontaneous speech now called The Light Has Gone Out of Our Lives, following the assassination of which nonviolent activist? The Mahatma? Yeah. Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Mohandas K. Gandhi, also known as Mahatma Gandhi, assassinated by Nathuram Vinayak Godse, a Hindu fundamentalist and former member of the Hindu Masha Mas. Hmm. I'm butchering this, everybody. Mahasaba. Spell it. M-A-H-A-S-A-B-H-A. Mm, yeah, that's tough. Okay. Um, and the assassination was at Birla House, Delhi, while Gandhi was heading for a prayer meeting. So messages of condolence for his death came in from across the world. And as world leaders paid homage to Gandhi, Bernard Shaw acerbically noted that it shows how dangerous it is to be good. Ooh. Yeah, but Nehru's speech was um, a spontaneous speech, and it yeah, it's very powerful. Question seven: Future President Richard Nixon ran into some troubles in 1952 when he was accused of improprieties relating to a fund established by his backers to reimburse him for his political expenses. He went on TV, gave a half-hour address, you know, told them that right to the RNC to if they didn't want him on the ticket anymore. And yeah. during the speech, he said that regardless of what anyone said, he intended to keep one gift, a black and white dog, given what name by his children. I imagine it was something really dumb and basic. So I'm going to say spot. Okay. This is checkers. Checkers. You got to know the checkers speech. Yeah. All right. Yep, checkers. So Nixon's speech was seen or heard by about 60 million Americans, including the largest television audience at that time, and led to an outpouring of public support. So a huge majority of the millions of telegrams and phone calls received by the RNC and other political offices supported Nixon. He was retained on the ticket, which then swept to victory weeks later in November 1952. The checkers speech was an early example of a politician using television to appear to appeal directly to the electorate, but has since sometimes been mocked or denigrated. So Checker's speech has come to more generally mean any emotional speech by a politician. I see. Okay. I have never heard that term before in my life. Oh. Yeah. Sorry. You got to know this. I got it. Richard Nixon, Checker's speech, 1952. Gotcha. Great. Question eight. Three true or false questions on three famous speeches by JFK. Great. I can do true or false. All right. 
First, JFK's famous line, ask not what your country can do for you, was delivered during his inaugural address in 1961. Uh, false. It is true. Shit. It was given during his inauguration in 1961. Second, in 1962, JFK said that we choose to do things, quote, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, end quote, in regard to the Bay of Pigs invasion. Uh, false. It is false. Yes. It was actually, do you know what this was actually about? Um, uh, I, the space program. Oh, the space program, of course. So this speech is also sometimes referred as... We choose to go to the moon. Yes, we choose. We choose to go to the moon. Yeah, 1962. Uh, Bay of Pigs actually happened in 1961. Mm-hmm. That. And that was not like public. Right. Like, he wasn't yeah. like letting everybody know no. what was going on no. in a day-to-day. Like, well, on it's that. odd. <laughs> I don't know what accent die. I'm doing. I don't know yeah. what I'm doing. Uh, but yeah, that we choose to go to the moon. Yeah. And then third. Ich bin ein Berliner, the best-known speech of the Cold War given by JFK in 1963, made him a laughingstock in Germany because the phrase really does translate to, I am a jelly donut. See, I think that's false. I think I heard somewhere that that's false. Are you saying false? I'm saying false. The answer is false. Yes. So there is a widespread perception that Kennedy made an embarrassing mistake by saying, Ich bin ein Berliner. So by including the indefinite article, ein, he supposedly changed the meaning of the sentence from the intended, I am a citizen of Berlin, to I am a Berliner. A Berliner being a type of German pastry similar to a jelly donut. Although the word Berliner is used for a jelly donut in the north, west, and southwest of Germany, it is not used in Berlin itself or the surrounding region, where the usual word is Fonkuchen, meaning <laughs> pancake. <laughs> so okay. a further part of the misconception is that the audience um, to his speech actually laughed at his error, but actually they were cheering and applauding when, when he used the phrase, especially... Okay after the first use of the phrase when Kennedy joked with the interpreter, quote, I appreciate my interpreter translating my German. And then everybody left. Sure. So because he, he actually made a joke. Yeah. And also, you know, people love it when you speak to them in their oh, yeah. native language. I mean, I have watched enough televised Beyonce concerts <laughs> to know that when she is like, hola, Caracas. Oh, my God. They're yeah. like, oh, my God. Yeah. You, she knows where we are. <laughs> She's looking at me. Yeah. yeah, it feels very true, like in concerts and stuff. When yeah. they're like, I mean, in Pittsburgh, especially, they'd be like, hey, Pittsburgh, good job with that whole football thing. And, and it was like, oh, the Yinzers are like, football that's football. Just, you're talking about us. You know what we did. So, it's yeah, fun. people love to be pandered to. Yeah, it's the best. Sure do. So easy. <laughs> Am I right, listeners? The greatest listeners in the whole wide world. Oh, so See, great. it doesn't work with a podcast. That's true. Because we don't get an immediate reaction. Yeah. So. That's actually wrong. Anyway. Bring it back down. Question nine. (laughs) In April 1964, at a church in Cleveland, Ohio, Nation of Islam leader Malcolm X delivered his famous speech advising African-Americans to judiciously exercise their right to vote. But he cautioned that if the government continued to prevent African-Americans from attaining full equality, it might be necessary for them to take up arms. What was the fairly alliterative title of this speech? I I did not know it even had a title, so okay. I couldn't even begin. It's called The Ballot or the Bullet. Oh, mm-hmm. Ooh, that's very powerful. Yes. So Malcolm predicted that if the civil rights bill of that time was not passed, there would be a march on Washington in 1964. But unlike the 1963 march on Washington, which was peaceful and integrated, the 1964 march that Malcolm described would be an all black, non nonviolent army with one way tickets. Mm. Non nonviolent. Yeah. That's a terrible way to that's describe a, it. That's a double negative. People. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the ballot or the bullet. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And finally, question 10. Hint, the answer is not the Berlin Wall. At what 18th century neoclassical monument was Ronald Reagan standing near in 1987 when he implored Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down this wall? I don't know. I'm rubbing my face. This quiz is so hard and I feel dumb. (laughs) It hurts. My brain. This is is my version of the Bible quiz. (laughs) I'm like, this is revenge. You're you're seeking revenge on me and my lack of knowledge of 20th century American history and (laughs) names of speeches. Who names a speech? Writes it at the top of their paper. Ooh, this is going to be good. I'm going to call this my checkers speech. Anyway, I don't know. What was it? What was it? Ronald Reagan was at the Brandenburg Gate. In 1987, okay. when he was talking about the Berlin Wall. All right. So the Brandenburg Gate is one of the best known landmarks of Germany, built on the site of a former city gate that marked the start of the road from Berlin to the town of Brandenburg an der Havel, which used to be the capital of the Margraviate of Brandenburg, a major <laughs> principality of the Holy Roman Empire from 1157 to 1806 that played a pivotal role in the history of Germany and Central Europe. <sighs> oh, my God. <laughs> He was at the Brandenburg Gate. At Brandenburg Gate. Go. All right, now I got to look up what the All Brandenburg right. Gate looks like. <laughs> You'll know it when you see I it. I know. I'll know it when I see it. Well, thank you, Julia, for <laughs> pummeling my brain this evening. Um, that was very good. Oh, uh, you do you have. Gotta li- I got a listener submitted trivia. Oh, I'll yeah. Up. Great. Yeah. All right, lay it on us. So, um,. I feel like a couple episodes ago, I talked, we mentioned Archibald McLeish. Yes. Yes. The greatest name. (laughs) Yes. We loved him. So um, we got a great listener submitted trivia from Liz T. um, And she wrote to us, just wanted you to know that rather than being a nervous, boring fellow, Archibald McLeish was, in addition to being FDR's librarian of Congress, a cool poet and playwright with three Pulitzers to his name who lived the Parisian expat lifestyle with Hemingway and Gertrude Stein and all those wild cats. He was an anti-fascist and anti-communist and practically invented the Library of Congress. Interesting dude. That's so cool. Now I see him as like, like, um, like a on the road, Ooh, like yeah. beatnik, like sexy. Yeah, secret with, beatnik. Yeah, secret beatnik with like round glasses, but like cool round glasses oh, and like a yeah. flop of hair in his face that he would like brush away. Yeah, like away. today he would live in Brooklyn. Oh my God, he would, he would be deep in Williamsburg. He'd roll up his jeans over his Converse sneakers. He's suspenders. Oh too. yeah, for sure. He drinks only like free trade coffee. Yeah. But like really bitter, like barely roasted. Like those hipsters, like they're so gross. Anyway, I'm sorry. Thank you, Liz T. Thank you, Liz T. That was very interesting. <laughs> um, and please continue to send us some listener submitted trivia. We've been getting some good stuff um, from around the world, oh, which is really so cool. exciting. Uh, so if you are someone who lives internationally or just someone who lives. I mean, you know, if you live in Rochester, like we still like to hear if you yeah, like we us would love or not. To hear it. I mean, you can come up to us in a party and be like, hey, I got some listener submitted trivia. Um, uh, or you can you can come up to us. Or tech, come at us. Come at us directly. Uh, Or you can tweet at us at MissInfoPod. You can email us at MissInfoPod at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page. You can write on our wall. Oh, yeah. Or send us a direct message. Uh, We are are misinformation colon a trivia podcast. Um, We've been getting a lot of feedback and stuff on, Mm -hmm. on the Facebook page. So that seems to be what people are kind of leaning toward right now. Um, or the Twitter, whatever. Or, or the Twitter. Yeah. Uh, I run the Twitter. Julia runs the Facebook. So, you know, you'll get one or both of us yeah. at, sometime. 
Um, and we also have a website, www.missinfopod.com. Yeah. Uh, we have an exciting upcoming collaboration that oh. we're going to share more information about um, once we know when it's going to air. Yes. But um, be, uh, be on the lookout for interesting information yeah. about this collab uh it uh fared out very well for us yeah. just that's just <gasps> that's just a hint that's just a little that's a little taste so <laughs> so as always you can find us on apple podcasts or itunes if you're old like me and you like to use itunes still <laughs> and your work hasn't confiscated it from your computer yet exactly um google play google podcast stitcher and then whatever podcast app you like with our rss feed and tell a friend and oh. rate review and subscribe please rate whatever, review and subscribe whatever, like upbeat things with exclamation points can we implore yeah. them to do sure like uh, keep listening guys we appreciate keep you listening. yeah we love it yeah <laughs> <laughs> Th- thank you thank you and we'll catch you next time bye bye <laughs>